welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's a Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs and, of course, CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify and CFRC podcast. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I would like to introduce you to Natasha Lomonosov, who is doing a PhD in English Language and Literature under the supervision of Dr. John Pierce. So welcome to Grad Chat, Natasha. Thank you, Colette. Um, I very much appreciate uh, being on the show. Which is lucky because you're here now. Yes, yeah, for <laughs> so, sure. <laughs> I love that. And it's it's interesting, uh, Natasha was saying she's been meaning to come on for quite a while and hadn't quite got round to it, but I'm glad you've sort of jumped in now and decided to come on the show. What made you want to come on the show now? Well, I'm at the fourth year of my PhD, so like very advanced in the researching and writing, and I'm hopefully looking to finish within the next year, year and a half. So like part of it is time. I mean, obviously, if I keep waiting until I can come on the show, then I time will run out and I've already finished my <laughs> dissertation. But, but I think too, being in the fourth year, it, it gives me you know, more of a perspective of what my research is about and the mm-hmm. questions that I've been working towards and finding the answers for which is great yes I know sometimes people say Claire I don't have anything to say yet but I'm thinking well you probably do and I could probably tease some of that out but it certainly does make it easier once you're in that writing stage because you've done all the prep and, and the research behind that so I'm glad you chose this now but with that I mean, what is your background? I know you're doing a PhD in English language and literature, but what got you interested in English language and literature? And, you know, what did you do in your undergrad and your master's? Well, I mean, growing up, like in both elementary and high school, I always enjoyed English as a subject, um, and it was something that I did well in. And when the time rolled around to apply for undergraduate studies, I just kind of thought, well, okay, I'll apply to English, you know, as a default subject and see where it goes from there. But I found as I was taking English courses, particularly in the second and third year, that I really enjoyed the aspect of analyzing the texts and doing secondary research on them. So I thought, oh, maybe this is something I should pursue further. And so I started looking into graduate studies. Right, and went from there. So I guess you had a love of reading for starters. Yes, I did have a love of reading. I was a voracious reader as a child. I know, I, th- I think that makes a difference too. I mean, I love reading, but to be honest, I don't want to write about it. But uh, <laughs> I like to just enjoy the book and come to my own conclusions and things whereas what you're doing in a PhD is a little bit more than that I mean because like you said you're actually analyzing the book you're looking at every nuance in there and excuse the pun but reading between the lines now what was the author thinking that kind of thing yeah definitely and of course sometimes that question of what was the author thinking is easier for well those who are still living because we can go and ask them right versus uh, someone like Anna Letitia Barbeau, who I work on and who lived a few centuries ago. 
So that activity of interpretation definitely is something in, in flux, and uh, it isn't a definite art, to be sure. Right. What did you look at in your master's? Well, in my master's, I took a course-based okay. program in which we uh, were required to take courses from a wide range of periods in literary history. But at the time, though, two courses on the sublime were being offered. One was 18th century literature, the other was the Romantic period, which kind of bridges the gap between that century and the 19th century. And I was already interested in that area to begin with, but um, really taking those two courses solidified, you know, my affection for the period. <laughs> the period of time. Yeah. Oh, that, and it's amazing, isn't it? It's just one or two little things that go, that's what I want to do, mm-hmm. as opposed to, oh, I'm still, I'm still not sure. So I'm glad you, you came to that conclusion. <laughs> that, that's what you wanted to do. So, so let's get on to your research then. Um, you are looking at religious and political writings of, as you mentioned, Anna Letitia Barbold a thinker and educator, as you said here, who lived in Britain from 1743 to 1825. But you're also interested in her contributions to public debate in the nation following the French Revolution in 1789, which, uh, as you said, some, some Britons supported. So, first of all, who is Anna Barbold? Okay, well, that's uh, a very good question. So Anna Barbeau, she was definitely better known at the time uh, that she was writing than she is now, Um, although in recent decades, some literary scholars in the 18th century have sought to uh, bring more critical attention to her works. So she was a writer and educator, uh, firstly, I would say. Um, So she grew up in the Protestant dissenting tradition, and they're known for being very intellectually focused. Her uh, father, Joseph Aiken, was a professor at Warrington Academy. Okay. Um, So she comes from a very academic tradition. And then later, she and her husband in the 1780s opened a boy for, or or, sorry, a school for young boys in Palgrave, Suffolk. And so um, she wrote a lot of educational literature for children. But beyond that, her writings, they across a wide range of genres so she wrote treatises discussing religion and like how to worship say pamphlets on political subjects like the campaign to abolish the slave trade Um, she even published a collection of poems in 1773 that's what first got her famous so I mean she was a writer who contributed to all kinds of genres and discourses in the period before we go too much into that wasn't there a period of time where a lot of female writers didn't actually use their proper names because it wasn't the done thing for a woman to be writing and for people to read their, their thought process? That's very true, yeah. And even in uh, many of her pamphlets, they're actually signed anonymously, so it wasn't known until later uh, who the author was. right. And definitely, in those cases, discrimination based on gender uh, did have something to do with it. It also could have been, like in the case of charged political debates, you know, in the aftermath of the French Revolution, that people might just not have thought or conceived that a woman could have opinions on such topics. It's not very ladylike, is it, to have an opinion? 
in yeah. those days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what made you choose her? Out of all the authors you could have chosen, why Anna Babo? Well, I kind of stumbled upon her by accident, to be honest. And it was an undergraduate course I was taking on 18th century literature. And for one of the assignments, we were given a selection of poems we had not necessarily covered in class, but uh, we could still write an essay on them nonetheless. And one of them was a really nice meditational poem by her called The Summer Evening's Meditation, which involves a lot of nature imagery. And I thought, oh, well, this is similar to William Wordsworth, you know, who's a much better known writer of the period who also wrote a lot about nature. So I thought, oh, well, I guess she kind of um, anticipates him in this way. So so that's kind of what brought me to think more about her as a figure. And then in the master's program here in the professional development seminar, when the time came to draft a practice statement for the CERC application, I thought, oh, well, why don't I uh, use her um, as my uh, idea for that? So yeah, it all kind of sprung from there. But then you found out so much more about her. Yeah, that's the best part. (laughs) I mean, before I didn't even have a collection of her works, but then one of the professors here, who's my second reader, Chris Fanning, he recommended, well, you should really buy uh, the Broadview edition of her collected works. So I ordered that from Amazon. It arrived, and I started reading it. And especially the political pamphlets, I was struck by the ideas. I thought, wow, you know, these are actually quite uh, profound. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot that I can pull from here besides her poetry. So, yes, I ended up learning a lot more about her, as you say. You mentioned in the beginning she started off more of an educator for boys. That's a big leap from educator to boys to poetry on nature and then more of the political side of things how did you find that was it a a gradual transition into those different areas well in her 1773 collection which if I recall correctly was written before she and her husband started up the school there are one or two poems that do contain political topics one called Corsica which I think was about the French invasion of the island or, okay. or an, an event uh, relating to the island of, of that sort. So we can say that an interest in political subjects was present, but perhaps um, in the 1790s and after the French Revolution, she didn't feel quite as compelled to speak up on them. Right. So with all that, that background of her... Give me a bit of an overview of what you're trying to do in your research about Anna Babel. Okay, so this approach is mostly inspired by her political pamphlets. And I want to argue that uh, Barbeau, while she did support liberal ideas for the time, such as abolishing the slave trade and um, allowing religious minorities, including dissenters, to participate more fully in public life, She recognized that she had to express these ideas in a way that would effectively reach uh, more conservative readers. So she uh, adopts an approach, what I like to term moderate radicalism, though it may (laughs) seem... Is that possible? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I know it seems oxymoronic, but I think that there can be great value in charting 
maybe what I want to call, you know, a less revolutionary and a more dialogue and conversation focused way of promoting social change. So you've learned a lot from her then about how in that period of time where, as we mentioned before, it's not always ladylike for the female to be putting political views forward. So she was finding ways in her writing to slowly, as we said, read between the lines. That said nicely, but if you really read between the lines, this is what she's saying. Is that what you're saying? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, I think her approach in some of the pamphlets, it's uh, a little bit more direct than that. Right. So, for instance, in her one which specifically deals with discrimination against dissenters, she does say, well, you wouldn't have anything to fear from letting us into positions of, of public office. But she does it in a, ch- in a tongue of cheek way by saying, well, we could never imagine to supplant, you know, the Anglican Church, which is the mother church of England. Right. Um, since there are so many more of you compared to us. So she she does it in these ways, which kind of makes her readers think um, about the fears that they have and uh, why they might be unfounded. So I think I should back up there. Who are the dissenters? Okay, yes, it would be useful to provide a definition. So the dissenters were non-Anglican Protestants in Britain in that period, And they emphasized, well, rational education, as I said before. Mm -hmm. And some of them also denied the Trinity. And, of course, uh, at the time, that was considered a staple of Christian doctrine. Right. So they're seen as being, like, outside of the bounds of mainstream theological opinion. And because church and state were, they're very much entangled at that point i mean Mm -hmm. the separation of it it was only a notion at the time that was beginning you know to uh be discussed so those barriers also spilled into you know the universities like cambridge and oxford being closed off and positions in in public office and politics closed off to the dissenters yes oh gosh i I wouldn't survive um in those times I think they were very hard times. (laughs) So with this, what are you trying to show from her works? What are you trying to show people today, either about her works or about her philosophy? Well, I'm trying to to show the possibility, I I would say, of dialogue, you know, in a polarised world. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, in North America and I guess in other parts of the world, We are living, you know, in an age where people are increasingly divided. But we can look back um, to Barbode's period because that was at a time when people were divided as well, you know, over the French Revolution and over the direction of of British and European society. But I believe that she models an approach or a way of expressing, you know, her ideas in a manner that facilitates dialogue and conversation between people on different sides of the political spectrum. So I think that would really be the key takeaway. And it's dialogue, not fighting. Yes, that's important. So did you find in her writings that some of this dialogue that she was hoping to get, who was it reaching? Was it reaching both males and females? Well, in terms of gender, it's hard to say because I 
I haven't yet, well, for the political pamphlets at least, I haven't yet read reviews of it by female uh, authors during the time, mm -hmm. but they were definitely reviewed by mainstream periodicals, both on the liberal and conservative ends of the spectrum. Right. Those on the liberal end tended to be more favorable to her ideas, although there's one writer or a couple reviews on the conservative end who, while they lamented the ideas that she put forth, they conceded that uh, it was written well. So they gave her that concession, at least. <laughs> that was very generous of them, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love people who, who review. <laughs> of course, it's on their own, uh, their own thinking, of course, which is why that they're there. So can you use how Anna Burbo looked at trying to get dialogue? Can we use that, do you think, to persuade others of our own viewpoints? Is there something we can take from her work to show even our own viewpoints effectively that I guess uh, in a way that acknowledges the issues which are at stake whether it's from that period of time or whether it's today I mean there's all sorts of dialogue going on today but we don't necessarily say it in a very good way <laughs> oh yes for sure yeah I, I think there's a lot in her approach that we can look at and, and learn from um, particularly in like reaching out to those whom we might have disagreements with and you know, trying to examine critically, not dismiss outright, but to examine critically their concerns and ideas. And that way, we, we can really get to the root of an idea or prejudice, and then we would be able to, to be to more adequately explain why it may be unfounded or wrong. Mm -hmm. Have you seen, and I know this is probably outside the scope of your, your work, have you seen other people in English literature following her period that have a similar way of showcasing this? Hmm. And I, I apologise for that because it is outside your scope. No, that, that's fine. Well, the first writer that comes to mind, it's been a while admittedly, but was is a Victorian philosopher named John Stuart Mill. He was also a mathematician. But at the time, he wrote pamphlets advocating both for uh, women's rights and enfranchisement and also an abolishment to the slave trade. And uh, in the, the latter one, he was responding to another well-known intellectual of the time called Thomas Carlyle, who lamentably did write defense of the slave trade in prejudicial terms. But the way that... Mill responded to him as unique because he does not attack Carlyle per se, but instead he embarks on a thorough takedown of why Carlyle's ideas are wrong. Aha, uh -huh. right. So he would be a good debater then. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess Anna Barbot is like that too, right? She's, she's balancing between what can I say and what can I say without offending someone. Yes, Anna Barbot is exactly like that, I would mm. say. Which, which would make her an interesting person to talk about. Have you found in the work, because as a, a grad student, often you get to be a t TA or even teach some classes, have you had a chance to bring Anna Barbot in some of your classes? Yeah. So, and in um, what ways have you brought her in? Okay, so the first way was when I was doing English 100, which is the first year course in the mm -hmm. department two years ago, uh, one of her poems was actually assigned on the syllabus called The Caterpillar. 
it's a lovely poem about how she's observing a caterpillar on her finger and then um, she laments her sympathy or compares her sympathy for this one lone caterpillar compared to the threat that she feels when faced with a multitude of them. <laughs> and so, I can imagine that too, be a bit freaky. <laughs> yeah, and so there are very interesting discussions brought in about the levels of sympathy that we have with students uh, in that right. class. Right. And then last year, it, it was for the same course, when the topic was essays, or we're in the essay unit, I did bring in uh, one of her political pamphlets uh, for the students to analyze uh, amongst themselves. Right. And how did they find that? I think that that some of them found it interesting. Uh, one student remarked that it seemed like very explanatory, like a lot of philosophy texts that she had encountered. Right. Did you show them both from the poem about a caterpillar and that? Because I think that was that would be quite a difference in someone's writing from talking about nicely about a caterpillar, even though it brings in sympathy, etc., as you said, to a political piece. Oh, no, I, I, I had not done that. But now that you've suggested it, uh, that would be a good <laughs> teaching strategy yeah. in the future. And because I think with literature, I mean, like you said, you can find out so much about a person of their development, because even if you said with Anna Babot, she started off perhaps with the poems and then teaching boys, and then it went more into into other areas. And I guess when she felt more comfortable writing, do you think that it was a natural progression type thing, or was it just the times? I think it it likely was a natural progression because I realize this is something I neglected to mention earlier. But uh, around seventeen eighty nine and ninety, there was also a another campaign there have been a few of them before to abolish the uh, test incorporation acts which were essentially the legal uh, strictures that made protestant dissenters swear an oath in order to uh, hold public office Um, and so basically they'd have to forswear their faith and that campaign failed again it didn't pass in the house of commons so that seemed to spur her on right um, to write uh, one of her pamphlets, uh, which was aptly titled An Address to the Opposers of the Repeal of the Corporation and Test Acts. (laughs) She's very good with her words, isn't she? Definitely. (laughs) I wish I was good like that. I'd have to get the dictionary out all the time (laughs) to choose the right words. So uh, you mentioned with some of the words, uh, some of the information that you've given me here, you've Pose the question here, how can we tangibly realise change, be it social or political? What do you mean by that? And and how do you answer that question? Well, I do acknowledge that that is a big question for sure. I guess what I, what I mean is, like within our capacity as, as private citizens and maybe organisations too, depending on like what cause you want to take up, because... I mean, a lot of people do look to politics to promote change, and Mm -hmm. I certainly think that that's a valid pathway. But, of course, as we know, uh, there's also a lot of bureaucracy involved in politics. And, you know, there can be, you know, decisions made based for arbitrary reasons, so it could be easy to get disillusioned. So by tangibly realizing change... I was also thinking about the capacity that the individual could do as well, whether it's volunteering with an organization, 
you know, spreading awareness about a cause that's important to them or even something as simple as person-to-person conversations. Right, right. And and do you think Anna Babo and her time, did, do you think she did enough in her, with her writing to affect any sort of social change, whether it be just to get more women reading and wanting to say a few things themselves or getting men on, on side with some of those uh, topics? An example that was cited in, in the biography that I was reading of her, and I, I know it's kind of long past when her pamphlets were initially published, but supposedly there is a pupil at the school, Thomas Denman, who was only four years old at, at the time, but she taught him then. Master Thomas? Yes. He later went on to become a member of the House of Parliament, and he led a campaign, I believe this was in the 1820s, so she would have been very elderly at this point, where to abolish slavery uh, completely throughout Britain. Right. And so even though the, the effects of that might have been passed when her writings were published, it still goes to show that something was accomplished eventually. Yeah, and maybe she had an impact on that, on that statement. Yeah. So with all the stuff that you've learned and what you're doing in your research, what's the main point you want people to know about Anna Bobo? It's a tricky one because she's done a lot. Yes, she has done a lot. (laughs) Well, I I think the main point that I want people to know about her is that, that she promoted dialogue and always, you know, the well-being of everyone, no matter which side of the political spectrum they're on, which nationality they were. But, but that she w- was, by all accounts, a champion of humankind. That's lovely. I mean, if I was Anna Babot, I'd be going, yes, that's fantastic. Thank you very much for summing me up, because that would be a lovely thing for people to realise that's, that's how she's come across, whether she meant that in the first place or not. That's how she's come across, particularly for you. So were you happy to have studied her? Yes, I'm um, very happy to have studied her. I mean, I suppose if I didn't study her, I could have gone with a more well-known figure like Wordsworth, but I think that I've hit on something special with her, and that's worth pursuing. Absolutely. You're very keen on it. I can see it. I can see it in your eyes there. (laughs) For people out there, uh, Natasha has a great big smile on her face, so clearly it's, it's hit home for you. So I see here you served in different positions since your time here at Queen's, uh, for instance, the Graduate English Society, what, what do you do with that? Okay, so throughout the years, um, I've been involved with different positions with, with them. So basically, they're like the Society for English Students at the graduate level. So in my first year here doing my MA, I was the uh, PSAC uh, union steward. So right. I would attend union meetings and uh, provide information to other members of the department on that. And then uh, three years ago, I want to say, I was the uh, SGPS representative for the English department and also the Works and Progress Coordinator. And this entailed organizing an informal conference um, where both graduate students and faculty could share their work. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Did you get to present as well? I presented one year, and then Mm -hmm. the next year I was the coordinator. Which is a lot of work. 
It, it is, although it was COVID then in 2021, oh. <laughs> so it was much less uh, work to organize a virtual conference than it was an in-person yeah, one. Yeah, and to find venues and food and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So so what was your takeaway from doing those sort of extracurriculars? Because I know your research yourself takes a lot of time. Well, I think it goes to show that like being a graduate student in, I mean, whatever department or area, um, it can be just as much a social experience as it is an academic one. Mm -hmm. And really having that sense of community and that there are other people alongside you doing similar things, it really helps to lessen the feeling of isolation. Right. And it it gives you, you know, an awareness that you're not alone, basically. We hear that a lot. And I I can imagine too with in the humanities where a lot of it is very singular um, it can be very lonely but I'm so glad you got involved in those too because like you said it gives you a bit of a community which is important as we're going through so Natasha we're going to have to stop there but thank you I had no idea about who Anna Babaud was I do now and I may have to go and do a little bit of uh history seeking uh, for some of these books to particularly some of the poetry and things to see what she she writes because I I do like reading as I've mentioned before and thank you for letting us know about who Anna Babode is. Oh you're very welcome and I hope that this uh, chat inspires other people to uh, yes. look her up as well. Maybe it should be coming on more of the high school curriculum. Yes definitely. <laughs> we'll change it all we'll change it all. So that's it, everyone. A Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or CFRC Podcast. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.